Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. My regular co-host Joe is out on parental leave, but today I'm going to be chatting with independent researcher into the archaeology of folk magic, Brian Hoggart. He's the author of the excellent book, Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft, which I highly recommend. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, you're welcome. So much of your work, and certainly your 2019 book, Magical House Protections, revolves around the archaeology of counter-witchcraft artifacts secreted, uh, in many cases, within historic homes. So before we get into the varieties and the particulars, what parts of the world and what time periods are we predominantly dealing with here? Well, um, it's actually worldwide, and um, I think it's been going on forever, to be honest with you, because humans seem to innately believe in the power of some kind of supernatural evil, and they fear it wherever they exist, whether it's sort of tribal societies or up to sort of quite sophisticated societies. And so it's been happening for as long as humans have been around, I think. Now, I want to come back to specifics in detail later, but, but what's, generally what sorts of objects are we talking about? And where do we tend to find them positioned in a home? Okay, so I normally work with uh, Western Europe, but also... Uh, receive reports of objects from much further afield as well. 
And, um, you know, within the home, we're talking mainly about hearths and thresholds. So wherever there's a fireplace or a chimney, that tends to be the main point of focus for a lot of this, a lot of these objects and practices. Um, and that's because the chimney is always open to the sky because it kind of has to be. And um, so it's also the most vulnerable point in the building for that reason. So um, at night, people fear things coming down the chimney. And also uh, thresholds, so windows and doors, obviously, are also points where the house could kind of leak, essentially. And um, they would often be protected. And uh, yeah, but literally any boundary point within a house, any precious object or precious person or precious artifact can, you know, you can find that people have gone to some efforts to protect them. I hadn't connected the dots on this till just now, but mentioning the the, the hearth as being a, an entry point. Uh, I guess we see this reflected at least distantly in traditions of Santa Claus entering a home through the hearth. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, in, indeed, that goes even further than that, really, because, yeah, it is the idea of some energy coming down the chimney. But, uh, but one of the types of objects that we often find in homes is uh, concealed shoes. And obviously, at Christmas, you you hang your stocking by the by the mantelpiece, which is a similar kind of thing. So you're kind of trying to trap some good energy instead of some bad energy. Oh wow! Now, early in the book, you do a tremendous and uh, and seasonally appropriate, I think, job of describing what the experience of church may have been like, especially to a pre-Reformation English uh, commoner. Uh, it, it sounds incredibly spooky and and real and really not at all that comforting. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I was wondering if you might uh, uh, sort of summarize just a little bit of the energy here. Yeah. So when uh, in the medieval Britain, when um, churches were still essentially Catholic before the Protestant Reformation, um, church rituals were usually conducted in Latin. So most uh, commoners or most parishioners wouldn't necessarily understand the language that was being spoken. And in fact, it's quite widely attested that a lot of priests didn't understand the words of the Latin rituals either. And they learned a lot of them by rote. So they just, uh, they knew the sounds. They knew how to um, emulate a Latin ritual rather than perform one. And those rituals would take place behind a screen, which was called the rude screen, which is basically a wooden screen that's been pierced in a decorative manner. So you could see behind, you could see through it, but not really clearly, a little bit gauzy. And, um, and there would also be incense uh, being burned as well and candlelight. So you've got um, a sort of spooky language that you don't understand, Latin, conducted in a kind of foggy, candlelit, misty environment, which is quite spooky, as you say. And um, on top of the rude screen, um, which was called a rude screen because it would have the rude on top of it, which is the image of Christ at Judgment Day, quite foreboding. And of course, a medieval church would uh, often be decorated with art, um, sometimes relating to the devil, sometimes relating to saints. So there'd be all kinds of supernatural imagery all around you, as well as the candlelight, the incense, the slightly opaque view of the ritual. Uh, yeah, it's it's really quite a magical environment, and I think that that's how a lot of people felt about it. Yeah, you mentioned in this section that, uh, for instance, one might not have like a clear idea of how the figure of Jesus factors into uh, everything, which of course is very easy to take for granted today, especially with among modern Christians and people in, in Western society. But uh, it's the idea here that you would have sort of the, the vague uh, structure of the Christian religion, and then uh, just the, 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 the common individual is then having to sort of fill in the gaps 
with other supernatural ideas? Yeah, to an, to an extent. I think it would vary quite a lot depending on how literate someone was or wasn't mm. and, um, and how inquiring their mind was as to whether they were actually asking their priest the answers to any of these questions or not. But yeah, I think there's sort of um overarching feeling that a God exists and they would hear about Jesus and they would hear about Mary, etc. but they wouldn't necessarily know what their relationship was. So I'm sure I've read an account before where someone, someone was um, asked, you know, do you know who God and Jesus are? And they would think that, oh, isn't Jesus God's uncle? And they would be really unclear about the um, familial relationships that that we might now think exist between them. So how, how does the Reformation change this scenario? Well, technically it's the Reformations, because there was like several oh, yes. attempts to kind of move it along. Um but yeah, essentially, it was about trying to dispel some of the superstitions that might have um, aggregated around belief in God and Jesus over the years. I think there was about a thousand years worth of um, people sort of augmenting what was going on in churches with their own ideas. And um, the Reformations were supposed to be about stripping all that away and getting back to the actual text of the Bible, um, particularly the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and um, trying to worship Jesus principally. Um, and also God, but, you know, with the whole Trinity, the Holy Ghost, and pretty much getting rid of Mary um, and getting rid of all the saints and all these other things that have kind of grown in importance over the thousand or so years um, before. So how does the the period of witchcraft persecution factor into all of this? Um, Because I'm I'm to understand much of this takes place in post-medieval times, no matter how much we, we, we might want to shove it back into prior centuries. Yeah, that's, an, that's a, an interesting one, because I think that belief in witchcraft and beliefs about witchcraft actually didn't really change very much during the period of witchcraft persecution. There were some new ones brought in, but essentially the, the core beliefs about witchcraft were essentially the same, in my opinion. They just um, became magnified, and that was partly through the popularity of um, new pamphlets and literature and the printing press, you know, the advent of the printing press. Um, and partly through, I, I guess, um, in a way, I think the stripping away of some of the superstitious aspects or the um, the saintly aspects as well, you know, where you could um, appeal for help to particular saints, you know, all of that being stripped away post-Reformation, I think um, meant that people had a bit more of a need to address supernatural feelings in their lives, yeah, <laughs> almost. Okay. And I think it's possible that um, witchcraft beliefs and worry about it were almost, um, they sort of came into the vacuum, if you like, created by the the absence of a lot of the things that people used to do pre-Reformation. Um, that's a fairly contentious argument. It's not that simple. You know, it's mm-hmm. probably more to do with the printing press than anything else. Um, the fact that um, sort of very salacious and exciting stories about witches and devils were being circulated in pamphlet form and then literate people, people who could read, would then... Uh, you know, regurgitate these to people who couldn't, and um, and this kind of heightened awareness of uh, the fact that there could be more danger around than there was before concerning witchcraft. So you you discuss some of this in the book as being like the elite understanding of witchcraft and and I guess ultimately demonology, right? That's that's again coming down through printed material, and then is it kind of like bumping heads and then meshing with ideas that would have been more commonly held among. Um, uh, uh, more common and, uh, and and less literate people. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of um, we get we get this kind of um, very much history gives us more of a top down look at what went on 
whereas archaeology tends us to give us a bottom up more kind of look at what went on and um and really um other than Ralph Merrifield before before me um and some of his colleagues who've been doing work but not published um there wasn't really an awful lot of people looking at witchcraft from the archaeology angle so so all we've ever seen really is from the history side top down and um i think an awful lot has been neglected or missed for that reason and so you know these ideas like like for example i'll talk about concealed shoes again some of our earliest examples of that are from the 14th century but we've also got examples of it from the 1970s you know oh, wow. and so okay. so it's been a it's been a complete continuum you know the witch the period of the witch trials as people think of it came and went but this practice has steadily been carrying on the whole time you know it's you know you can say that it had a period of magnification during the witch trials yeah but it's hasn't gone away and it didn't leave you know <laughs> and it's um it's always been there so the common people if you like the the sort of illiterate people maybe continue doing what they were doing and then they started to hear about these apparently new dangers or more powerful witches or that there was some kind of panic going on and it just raised everybody's fears so there was always some fear you know there was general fear of the dark general fear of um the supernatural especially particularly about around sleep you know because uh, how could you protect your house when you're asleep so that's one of the big worries that people had but um but you know during the period of uh the, uh, some people call it the witch craze. I don't really like that term, but you know the kind of excitement about witches. Um, obviously, fear was heightened, so um, people did more things to try and keep them away. And um, that's when, you know, for example, witch bottles were, a direct, in my opinion, a direct response to um, to the witch trials, to the period of heightened fear. But um, but the rest, the, the, all the other things, seem to have just um, become magnified if you like more important during that time but they'd always been there now, now you've, you've mentioned witch bottles so th- this might be a good time to to, to ask uh, uh, what is a witch bottle what would it contain and and where were they found okay so um witch bottles were um there's this an awful lot of detail here they were um <laughs> essentially german stoneware bottles which uh, in germany were known as bartman stoneware nothing to do with the simpsons and okay. basically um germans had this the ability to make stoneware which is this non-porous really hard bottle which in britain we couldn't make we only had earthenware so um so basically when we found out about stoneware we wanted these bottles yeah and so they were shipped over by hundreds of thousands usually filled with beer or wine and that beer or wine would be consumed, then the bottle would either be cast away. But the thing is, because these bottles were so good, they'd often be reused again and again and again. But the significant thing about them is that they have a really evil-looking mask of a man on it. Yeah, So they look quite anthropomorphic. So these bottles have a salt glaze, which gives them a kind of leathery, skin-like appearance. Then they have this beastly-looking face on the neck. And then they have a big round belly, which often has a kind of um, armorial shield on it, which sometimes looks a little bit occult or a little bit kind of spooky. And sometimes as well, they're quite sort of um, petal-like, quite flower-like, which is um, which resembles another one of the marks that often crop up in this uh, area of study as well. And so for that reason, you know, if you were going to do anything magical, you would want to use this bottle because it, it looks anthropomorphic. It's quite a spooky-looking bottle. You couldn't imagine a better bottle for doing magic with, put it that way, if you want to, if you were sitting at home and you wanted to do some. So anyway, these bottles, we quite often find them um, underneath the floor, 
sometimes up to a metre deep underneath um, a flagstone in front of a hearth or directly underneath a hearth, sometimes integrated into an ingle nook into the wall. And um, they're often upside down in the ground. We're not entirely sure why the upside down thing happens. But inside the bottles, this is when we x-ray them, they, they often show evidence of lots of pins and nails that have accreted or aggregated and um, coagulated around the neck where the, where the gravity is just taking them down towards the neck. And then when we open them and have a look inside, they've often got some liquid, um, a big lock of hair, sometimes some thorns or other pins. In- importantly, the, the pins and nails which are found inside are usually deliberately bent as well. And when I say deliberately, we have assessed the angle of the bend and it seems like in many cases these nails and pins have all been bent around the same iron pole so someone's deliberately sat there and gone round lots of pins and nails before adding them into the bottle. So there's clearly an element of sort of ritual or like a quite a lot of effort goes into putting it together. And then of course you have to dig this really deep hole to, to put it down there. And so essentially what we've got is an anthropomorphic bottle. So it looks like a human. And inside it we have... Um, the liquid, it turns out, through analysis, is human urine. And so we've got a human's urine in there. We often also have nail clippings, nail pairings in there, a big lock of hair, and then all these pins and nails that have been deliberately and meticulously bent before being added into the bottle, which has then been sealed with a bung or a cork, and then buried upside down under the earth, covered over, and a big flagstone put on top of it. Whew. So it's quite a lot of effort, <laughs> isn't it? Quite a lot of effort. Yeah. Right. And uh, what what it, what I think is happening here is that because 50% of all of these bottles are found by the hearth or in the immediate vicinity of the hearth, so that we, again, we've got this focus on the hearth. And so the idea is if something bad, like a spell or an energy or maybe a demon or something like that is potentially travelling down your chimney trying to attack you, it's plunging down the chimney trying to find you. It detects this human-like figure it smells like you, it's got your hair in it, it's got your fingernail clippings in it, it's got your urine in it, and it dives down to attack you, and when it gets inside the bottle, it then gets impaled on all these dead pins, which you've deliberately killed one by one before putting them into the bottle, so there's kind of like the ghosts of pins there to work against the ghost that's trying to attack you. And so there are some some bits of folklore that suggest that spirits and witches aren't very good at travelling backwards so once they get into a spot they find it difficult to get out so maybe there's an element of that like a kind of trap as well so like a trap slash impaling people you know a decoy that has a trap within it that seems to be what's going on but confusingly there is there are some texts that relate that talk about witch bottles that describe something different right so there are several texts in the late 17th century that talk about this idea of boiling a witch bottle. That um, if you think you've been bewitched, or if you know someone who's been bewitched, you can take a bottle and you can get them to urinate into it, and you can add some pins and nails to it and boil it on a fire. You've got to bang it up and then boil it on a fire. And the idea is that this will that the the bottle will act as kind of a substitute bladder for the you know, and by boiling it, you're causing pain to the witch because they had this belief that if you've been bewitched, um, there's something of the essence of the witch inside you as well. So so if you then urinate into this bottle and do something to it, it's going to have an effect on the witch. And uh, so the, the, the thinking is in these texts um, that excruciating pain is caused to the witch, who will then come seeking you out and will come knocking on your door, begging for you to stop boiling the bottle. 
and in return you can barter your freedom from the spe- whatever spell has been put on you. And uh, generally speaking, it says that if that fails, you should then bury the bottle. So that's interesting, but it's different to what we find in the buried bottles. Okay, so the buried bottles obviously have hair, which isn't mentioned in any of these texts. The texts also don't mention bending the pins to kill them, if you like. You know, so what we've got is two separate ways of working that are thought to be behind these two practices. The boiling thing seems to be depending on the idea that you can uh, cause pain to the witch's bladder by sort of acting upon a substance that might be infused partly with the witch. Whereas the ones that are buried seem to be acting as a decoy and a trap. Yeah, and I think that that practice, the one where the bottles are buried, actually resembles and has a lot in common with other practices like shoes and like some of the marks and all sorts. Whereas the one with the boiling seems to be, well, one of my friends who was studying that called Dr. Annie Thwaite, she was studying it for a long time and she called it the urinary experiment and saw it as a kind of pseudo-medical practice that um, people at the time thought that supernatural energies were real and that this was a way of potentially removing them from someone you know, they were sort of using medical theory, if you like, to try and remove the presence of a witch. Whereas the one where you bury them seems to have more in common with folk practices that have been going on for a very long time. So I'm not sure, you know, they certainly both use the same type of bottle. They both emerge at about the same time, which is the third quarter of the 17th century or thereabouts. Um, but two separate practices. And I wonder if, um, you know, you have the written one that's more about medicine and science and you have the the other one, the buried one, that's like more going with the uh, the real old school kind of folk magic to how how to get rid of a witch. Wow, yeah, it's just just so so amazing. And 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 so ha, like very roughly roughly speaking, like what what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of surviving witch bottles that have been recovered? Um, since I last um, started counting, I mean, the, I think when I published there was about 130 odd Bellamines, uh, which is the German German type ones. And there was probably another 80 or 90 of glass ones that I had on the file. And I wouldn't be surprised if the, the German stoneware ones was easily in excess of 200 by now with the amount of reports. But, um, but you have to bear in mind that these things are only ever found when someone demolishes an old building or excavates under an old building. So there's probably a vast amount more that have been discovered that just weren't reported because these bottles are actually quite valuable. So you know you can sell you can sell one that wasn't used as a witch bottle for potentially four to five hundred pounds on an eBay, um, and if it was used as a witch bottle, I've seen people selling them for up to fifteen hundred pounds. So you know, so yeah, they're, they're reasonably valuable when it comes to uh, the black market. So I think a lot of builders and uh, homeowners, when they find these, they're they're curious, but they also see a, uh, an opportunity for making a bit of money. And um, and so we don't know exactly how many there were, but I wouldn't be surprised if. Um, they were maybe 50 times more common than my figures suggest. No, maybe even more than that, yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, you, we've twice mentioned shoes. Uh, so uh, uh, if, you, if you would explain um, uh, how do shoes factor into all of this, because on one hand, we have the witch bottle here, which, uh, you know, once, once explained, has all of these you know, obvious occult uh, and supernatural aspects to it. But, but, but shoes, we, we take for granted. Any number of us just have shoes probably piled towards the front of our house, and we don't attach any, any kind of special importance to them. That's right, and that's because uh, we have an amazing factory production system that makes them cheap and easy to buy. Mm. But um, once upon a time, they were, um, you know, artisan-made things, and of course, we do actually still have a culture of the professional artisan shoemaker. Uh, it still exists, and there are still people who care about the history of shoes and and still make very expensive handmade shoes. But of course, once upon a time, that was the only kind of shoe you could get would be a handmade shoe, and they were quite expensive. And so they were repaired and repaired and repaired until you eventually could, wouldn't, um, you know, couldn't use them anymore, basically. So they were quite valuable in more ways than you can imagine now. But, um, but yeah, they are the, probably the most common um, object that's found in buildings is concealed shoes. They're usually concealed um, on their own. It's usually just one shoe. Um, in the old days, shoes weren't made to fit a left foot and a right foot. They were just the same and they would take the shape of the wearer's feet gradually over time. But these ones that we find, they're as I say, they're almost always an odd shoe. I think there's slightly less than 10% are found as pairs, and they're almost always extremely well-worn, because who would get rid of a brand-new shoe with them being so expensive, like, like I said before? And also, they then wouldn't be able to, if they hadn't taken the shape of the wearer's foot, they couldn't perform the function which I um, give, which I suggest that they have, which is, and not just me, other people too, but um, that they act as a kind of decoy, a bit like we were talking about with the witch bottle that it's got some hair and some urine in it so it kind of fools any evil energies that are looking for you into thinking that you're there um it's the same idea with shoes um that an evil entity or a spell or something negative trying to get into your house is seeking you to cause you harm and it finds your shoe which might have been on your foot for many years and has taken every you know it's uniquely your shoe it wouldn't fit anywhere else, anyone else Coincidentally, this is also where the, the Cinderella myth comes from, you know, the fact that shoes become a unique thing to someone's foot. And, um, and yeah, so it, so it then plunges down to attack the shoe as a decoy, and it, and it attacks it instead of you. So it's um, essentially acting as a kind of lightning conductor. It's drawing negative energy away from you, which is great, isn't it? And um, the idea that it's kind of tra- trapping the energy inside it. Now, the idea that the shoe can act as a trap is weird, okay? But... <laughs> there is some kind of historical evidence for it. So there was a a 14th century priest from England from a little village called North Marston in Buckinghamshire. And um, he was, when I say he was an unofficial saint, I mean, he was never ever canonized by the Catholic church. So people regarded him as a saint, even though he wasn't actually one. And um, he is reputed to have cast the devil into a boot, which is a, a remarkable thing to do, as I'm sure you can imagine. But the interesting thing about John Sean is that even though he wasn't um, officially a saint, pilgrimages to his shrine for a period of about 250 years was the second most popular shrine in Britain and um, second only to Thomas a Becket at Canterbury Cathedral. In fact, he was so popular that the, the monarchy in Britain stole his relics from the church at North Marston and moved them to Windsor so that they could benefit from the money that the pilgrims brought to come and visit um, his shrine and then 
those remains and relics have then been returned to North Marston when his popularity waned. But the interesting thing is that the little pilgrim badges that people would pick up when they went to visit his shrine, all of them show him holding a big boot with a little devil poking out of the top. And um, and we're talking um, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions of people, would have had a badge that showed a devil trapped in a boot. Yeah. And uh, not just that, but an awful lot of churches had imagery, obviously, to do with all of the saints. He was an incredibly popular saint. And so many, many churches would have had an image of John Shaw holding a boot with a devil trapped in it. Um, so from the 14th century onwards, this was a really popular idea that you could trap a devil in a boot. And, um, and, and funnily enough, that some of our earliest examples come from that time. So back to the, the shoes themselves, as I say, sometimes you find them singly, sometimes you find them in large groups. Sometimes you'll find there'll be a void in a house just through, through some sort of quirk of construction that people can drop a shoe down. And for example, the plough at Sittingbourne in Kent, there was over a hundred shoes, I believe, collected from that building from four different deposition points. And those shoes have been dropped into those voids over generations. So subsequent owners of the building all carried on the same practice of putting old worn shoes down the same holes. And um, and you end up with this record of footwear over over the ages, as well as um, <laughs> evidence of people's desire to uh, draw evil away from the people in the house. Now, what about dried cats? Why dried cats? Oh, the poor little cats. I love cats. So I, I would never do this to a cat and I would never advocate anyone ever does this to a cat. This is a tradition from the past. We don't do it these days. So please don't go hiding cats in your houses, people. But um, but yeah, it's it's really, really common throughout the whole of Europe um, and Britain and Australia, actually, and the USA. So we have examples from, from all over. There's also an example that I have on record from Canada, but I don't have so many records from Canada. I've also got a record from Chile, actually. So um, it's a very, very widespread. And uh, it seems to be, uh, earlier on I mentioned about um, people um, having being very concerned with who was or how was the house being protected while they slept. And so there's an element of this going on with cats because they're semi-nocturnal, they are quite mysterious in their behaviour. In Certainly in the British Isles, there was um, a belief about the witch's familiar that was often focused on cats as well. So it's that kind of leans towards uh, how mysteriously people thought about them. Um, but yeah, essentially they're benevolent little creatures that are in our lives. They help control pests. and uh, But also, we must also consider the fact that they breed like wildfire if they're not neutered and spayed as we do in the modern world. Um, so basically there were too many cats and they were semi-nocturnal, generally helpful. And so people started to, they fell naturally into a helpful role, essentially. So a lot of these practices, what, one of the things you'll find in common with them is that people were thinking about how do we, how do we affect something that's happening on the supernatural plane, as it were. Okay. So most people weren't able to be supernatural. They weren't witches or wizards. Yeah. But there were these things happening to them that were coming from the supernatural plane or what they believed were happening to them from the supernatural plane. And so they had to find ways of affecting it. Yep. And they had to find special little recipes and special little practices that would have an impact on those things. So, for example, these old shoes that are no longer worth using, no, no longer worth keeping on your foot, are essentially dead shoes. So they've died. They've flipped over to the other side. So they're now effective against the other side, against the supernatural realm, if you like. 
And then with the witch bottles, you know, you've got a big lock of hair removed from your hair or nail pairings clipped off. These are parts of you that were attached to you and were considered to be alive, which are now dead because you're, and so they're now on the other side, acting as a kind of lure or bait on the other side. And then the same thing with these nails. And then we come to the point where in that way of thinking, here is a cat that's alive, but friendly and can control pests. If we make it dead, if we flip it into the other side, we can hope that it continues that role on that side, yeah, as a presence in the house. And so what I think is going on is that um, these cats are being essentially kind of sacrificed, if you like, to the house to act as little protectors of the house while you sleep, because they're awake while you're asleep. And they're catching vermin. Um, they're looking out for things that might come in that might harm you. Like, you know, instead of pests, you know, exchange the word pests for spells, you know, negative energies coming in, you know, and uh, I think that's what people were doing. And there's also, um, there's a little bit of, see, I, I think that the idea that I've just expressed to you is probably the main one, but um, but people have often thought about whether cats were killed as a foundation sacrifice, that you give a life to the house so that it won't then take a life later by falling down on you. And um, I once had a very brief discussion with Terry Pratchett about dried cats, and that was that was his idea, was that he thought that was what was going on. Um, but I think it's more to do with this, um, you know, the role of a cat in death. I think it's more to do with what I said to you earlier about how, you know, you take some of the qualities of the cat and by essentially killing it but keeping it within the house, you've hopefully got a helper within your house who's going to even... Why would it want to help you if you've just taken its life, right? But but I think that that was the thinking that was going on there. And um, we find them in all sorts of places. Find them... Like the first one I ever came across was actually in um, a village I used to live in, uh, which is weird because I'd moved away. And then the first report that came through my website was of just a few streets away from where I used to live. And a dried cat was found in, sandwiched in between some layers of thatch in a house. It was basically a, a 16th century cottage. But they think that the cat dates from 100 years later. Yeah, and it was squashed quite flat. You know, the way, you know, quite serious pressure had been put on it. There's no way it could have got there by itself. It had been placed there quite deliberately. And, um, but yeah, we find others that are sometimes strapped to floor joists. You know, they literally could not have got there by accident. And there are others that are found, uh, not not me personally, but there was another one found sandwiched between tiles and plaster in the roof of a church. Clearly had been placed there by the builders. You know, and that's another thing worth thinking about. Some of these some of these methods and practices were put there by the builders and some were put there by the homeowners. So we sometimes, you know, when we're looking at an old house and looking at all the fines we get from an old house, we try to discern, you know, which of them were put there by the builders and which were added later. So was there generally an idea that the builders were sort of on the side of the house and on the side of the occupants? Because I'm, I'm reminded of something I was reading about in, in Chinese traditions. I believe this was from uh, a book by Philip A. Kuhn uh, about the Chinese sorcery scare of 1768. And in this one, it, a lot of it had to do with, with written magical protections that were used during a, a, during a home's construction to protect against potential curses leveled by the actual laborers against like the the owners or future occupants of the house mm, that's in, that's that's an interesting one I'd, I'd quite you can send me that reference later i'd like okay. to read that one but yeah um but yeah i think that generally speaking um in england for sure because that's where i tend to know the most about it but um in england it seems like it was an additional service that the builders could provide or could offer okay. 
So say you've got um, two builders and you're trying to assess which one do you want to pay to give them a contract to build your house. You know, one of them has clear expertise in marking the timbers in such a way that it will act as and you know that it will repel evil just through the timbers that have been put up there. You know, mm-hmm. and so you're gonna you're going to go with the builders that can help protect you in a supernatural way slightly more than you would another company that wasn't so good at doing that. Um, yeah, so it's another, it's another service that some builders offered and. But it's a bit more nuanced than that because I think that, you know, you might have um, somebody who is the principal builder might employ a carpenter and a stonemason and they might both have individual practices that they could do. And whether they would do them on that project or not might depend on whether they liked you or not or, um, you know, how skilled they were in that in that field. So there's quite a few different, you know, elements at play here. I wouldn't say it's necessarily as simple as one builder would give you the all-round service. You know, they'd give you their cat, the marks, the you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think some of these practices were a direct response to people feeling that they'd been bewitched as well. So that would have definitely come after um, a building had been put up. But there were certain things that, certain marks in particular. And, um, you know, I do, I do think that builders leave shoes, for example, and sometimes they include glass bottles, sometimes empty ones in buildings as well as part of um you know in addition to some of the other masons kind of uh traditions like the topping out ceremonies and things like that but um but in terms of uh specific counter witchcraft there was quite a few things builders and their tradespeople could do today's episode is brought to you by ebay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, if this is too big of a question, we can we can skip this one. Uh, but uh, I was also fascinated by the whole uh, topic of uh, horse skulls being included. Uh, in um, uh, foundations and in floors, uh, because uh, on one hand it makes sense that it would line up with some of the things we've already talked about here, like uh, the horse is a is an important animal and um, and, and having an important role in the in, uh, for 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 the, the the humans that are doing this. But then there's this whole um, potential acoustic angle, right? Yeah, it's I've been grappling with the whole notion of horse skulls and the different theories at play for quite some time. I don't think I haven't quite finished thinking about it all yet, but um, but I think I've got more answers than I had before. Um, so when we were talking about cats earlier being um, nocturnal, mm-hmm. and people worried about um, who was looking after their house when they were asleep, I think that the horses play a role in that. Um, and it took me a while to to realise this, but basically. Horses can, although they don't always choose to, they can sleep standing up and with their eyes open. So they can be in a, in a sleep state, but look like they're awake, you know, and they're, and they are basically, um, in a shallow sleep. They're ready, ready for action, ready to be alert for the benefit of the other horses that they're with, who might just be, um, literally falling asleep on their back with their hooves in the air. You know, some of them are like that, but there'll be one or two of them that can be awake in this kind of light sleep with their eyes open. 
And I think that people knew that. So this idea of horses as incredibly vigilant creatures was, I think, part of what's going on. And then we also have um, the fact that if you take a horse's head and you deflesh it, to use a horrible word, um, a defleshed horse skull um, is a really dramatic-looking thing. Um, I presume you've there's big tradition of using horses in the states. Obviously, I presume you've seen a horse skull. You know they are they're they're quite quite uh, impressive-looking beasts. And I think that when when they're in that state, you know, when it's just a horse skull, they they seem to have almost a supernatural power about them. Um, you know, they take on a different persona. It's not like um, you know, a dead cat is a dead cat, you know, whereas, whereas a, a horse skull, as opposed to a living horse, is a, a kind of supernatural thing. It looks different and it's regarded differently, I think, as well. And um, some of the ideas at play in Counter Witchcraft are about basically being scarier than something else. So, you know, so if you've got something that's really scary, a lesser scary thing might be scared away by it, you know? Like, there's... Um, there's one tradition, for example, with rug working that I've heard about where um, certain rugs that were put in front of the fire would often have a red diamond pattern on them. Also, like just a red diamond in the middle or in the corners or something. And some of the folklore around this is that a devil poking his head down the chimney would poke his head down the chimney and think, oh my goodness, there's already a devil in the house. I won't go interfering with this and would go scarpering <laughs> up the other way to go and find the house that doesn't have a devil in it because the diamond is meant to represent this devil's eye. And I think in a way, this idea with the horse skull is that they are particularly frightening and quite large, so they could actually intimidate and frighten away um, other things. And I think that the sort of proof of that is that horse skulls are used in some of these folk dance traditions, which appear to be about scaring away spirits like the Marilouid and other, you know, the certain other ones that, um, like the Obios and uh, what's the other one called? The Hooden Horse as well, you know, these kind of dances and rituals that have these kind of horse-like figures that go dancing around and convorting around the countryside and you know with with the Mary Lewid for example there's um there's also a custom in that of sweeping the hearth and cleaning the hearth away with this mm. figure that's a horse skull and a big cape and um and that again seems to sort of tune in with this idea of protecting the hearth as well um so yeah I think that the horse skulls you know and on top of that there's all this ancient myth about horses as well you know and uh the, the idea that horses were thought to literally tow the sun up you know mm-hmm. you know at sunrise and and chariots of the gods almost you know and uh and they were also um the way that people access the underworld sometimes as well they you know you would ride your horse to valhalla or, or it would take you to the underworld there's all these really old ideas about horses as um supernatural beings that um had access to other worlds almost yeah at the same time they've got this really multi sort of sort of multifunctional role almost on a mythic level in human life you know and um but ultimately when we're talking about the period this period of the witch trials if we if you want to look at that period for example mm-hmm. we're talking about animals that are broadly benevolent to humans you know we don't see them simply as eating animals you know although they were eaten and still are in some countries but yeah they were you know kind of a benevolent role in our lives but also this kind of incredible vigilance about them and also this kind of fearsome aspect to them when they are in the shape of a horse skull. And um, in my book, I do cite one example from, I think it's 1897, where um, this is actually um, <clears throat> reported in a really good book about folklore in Cambridgeshire, where this building company were, were essentially laying the foundations for a new chapel in um, Cambridgeshire. 
and they sent the builder's lad off to get a horse's head from the knacker's yard because um, they had a very strong tradition of um, placing a horse's head in the base of the foundations, which at first you think this is a foundation sacrifice, but it's not that simple because after they've poured some beer over it and they've all shoveled various bits of stonework and everything and earth over the top of it, they then said that they were, they were doing this quite clearly to ward off evil and witchcraft, you know? So it's not, it's not as simple as thinking foundation sacrifice, appeasing local spirits. They very clearly believed this was for warding off evil and witchcraft, this idea of including a horse's head in the base of a foundation trench, um, in 1897, which, um, you know, is well into the industrial era. And, um, and we know that um, there are many examples of horse skulls and horse bones found underneath non-conformist chapels throughout all of Wales and probably much of much of England as well. Um, and these many of these chapels were built well into the 1940s, you know. And, um, and yet we also know that horse skulls were concealed under, under dwellings in the 15th century because we've got archaeological records of them. Yeah, and that's the whole idea of horse skulls being concealed instead of the whole horse. I'm not sure exactly when that happened, you know, because um, the Vikings used to conceal whole horses, or not conceal them, but bury them and have lots of rituals to do with them. But at some point between that period and the 15th century, it became much more about the horse's head or the horse's skull. But we're not sure exactly when. It's hmm. fascinating. And confusing. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it, now, is there is there also an idea that there might have been an acoustic benefit in some of these cases to having the, the horse skull under there? I'm glad you brought me back to that because I clearly wandered away from that topic. Uh, but yeah, so there there is this idea that um, somehow horses act as natural amplifiers or acoustic um, enhancers in buildings. So when people first started looking at the practice of concealed horse skulls, um, particularly in Ireland, actually, a paper by Sean O'Sullivan, I think it was in 1945, um, but the reference is in my book if I got that wrong. But yeah, he was asking, you know, what what was the reason for them concealing these horse skulls underneath um, stones in front of the hearth in many of these cottages? And the answer he got from many of these people was that it made the dancing sound better in the evening. You know, so when they were gathered together in the evening around the fire and they were doing some Irish dancing, it sounded uh, nicer by having a horse skull um, underneath uh, the, the stone. And then similarly in... England, when they found 24 horse skulls beneath the floor of the Portway Inn in Herefordshire, which is in Staunton-on-Wye, this village, um, they said it made the fiddle go better, made the fiddle sound better. And then in Sweden, for example, uh, when Albert Sandcliff was re- you know, researching horse skulls beneath barns, threshing barns in Sweden, you know, he came to the conclusion... Th- mostly through what people told him, that it made the flails sound better when they were threshing wheat. Mm. And uh, But, you know, I find it... I struggle with it a little bit because, um, you know, I'm a, when I'm not doing this kind of research, I am also a musician. I've been playing guitar for over 30 years. I think I'm quite good at it, actually. But, um, but yeah, I have a horse skull on top of the bookshelf behind my head right now. And I also play guitar in this room quite a lot. And I have certainly not noticed any kind of ringing or pleasant harmonious sound because of it. Um, it may be that I need to attach the horse skull to a floorboard with a big screw in order to to notice any benefit. Um, I haven't yet tested that. I, let's let's just say that I'm dubious about the acoustic benefits of horse skulls, um, especially because 
I'd say about 50% of the examples I am aware of are in locations where a lot of the sound that they could produce is absorbed by the earth that they're set in or they're in a part of the building that wouldn't, you know, sound wouldn't reach that part of the building, you know. So, you know, um, so I'm a, I'm a little bit dubious about that. And I, I think that a lot of the reasons why people gave this explanation is because it was um, a way of saying that you weren't doing something heretical or superstitious, you know. If you said you're you know, you're walking down the street with a pair of horse skulls under each arm and the local <laughs> vicar comes up to you and says, what on earth are you doing? You're like, oh, it's, uh, it's to improve the acoustics uh, when we're <laughs> dancing in the evening. Of course it is, you know. Um, and I would say that probably a big clay bowl or something would be better at it. I mean, maybe it's more expensive. Obviously, um, we used to have, you know, our, our transport culture was completely dominated by the horse for centuries. So there was an awful lot of available horse skulls you know you they maybe this was a use people found for them and maybe people really believed that there was maybe there is some marginal acoustic benefit that i'm not aware of but um but yeah i personally i think that it be that explanation began as an excuse for why someone is walking around with a horse skull trying to dig a hole into their house um rather than because uh, they thought i desperately need to improve the acoustics in my house and a horse skull must be the way i do that now, as we've mentioned already, these artifacts tend to emerge during cases of demolition or renovation, uh, digging up uh, the ground beneath old dwellings and old buildings, et cetera. Uh, and, and you also mentioned like the black market and so forth. What What is the appropriate course of action uh, that you would recommend if anyone out there is engaged in construction, renovation, demolition, et cetera, if they find something that... That, that could conceivably be part of one of these traditions what what should they do the perfect thing to do is first of all as soon as you see something emerge from the ground or emerge from a wall is just pause and take loads of photographs from every angle <laughs> just sort of really really record it as well as you can maybe do a bit of video as well you know write down when you found it what you found yeah before you even touch it you know and then um Ideally, then contact someone who is interested in it or is an expert in that field. Obviously, I would like you to consider me if you find those things, you know, and I'd like to give you some advice or maybe look at some photos and have some input about what you've found. And then the ideal thing, because obviously I live a long way away from many of your listeners, you know, the ideal thing is that you find some way of keeping it in the house after you've recorded it as well as you can keep it in the house and keep it where 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 you found it if you can um some people find solutions like they'll put a little window so you can still see it and appreciate it and it's a kind of fun oh. talking point in the house mm-hmm. um i know lots of houses where they've done that with dried cats as well actually even though they're a bit gruesome to look at lots <laughs> of people still like to keep them obviously as something like a dried cat it's um it's organic and it's it could rot if it becomes damp so you've got to think more carefully about what you do with that and a lot of people do end up disposing of them for that reason but you know if you can keep it dry and keep it visible or just 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 conceal it again just put it back in and forget all about it um like the first one i ever came across went straight back in the thatch after i'd recorded it and it's still there as far as i know so that is the best thing to do that's very by far the best thing to do um wherever you live that's the best thing to do the shoes by and large, they're not going to be worth anything. So, um, you know, record them and put them back. You're not going to lose any, any money. You're not denying yourself some kind of riches by re, re, reconcealing a shoe or a cat. You know, um, the ones that, that people assign more monetary value to are the witch bottles because pottery, you know, nice old pottery with 
clear witchcraft, uh, you know, connections is very interesting. But what I would say to you is sell it to your local museum. You know, your local museum will love to own it and I'm sure would make you an offer if you have a history, you know, local history museum. And um, just make sure you offer it to local historians or archaeologists after you've recorded it and let them buy it off you. Don't put it, don't just put it on the black market because someone will buy it and its provenance will be lost and no one will know where it is forever after. So that's my only request is just record it as well as you can, share that information. And if you're going to sell anything, sell it responsibly, sell it to someone who is going to care about that object and care about its relevance and its context in your local historical environment. Now, in some cases, uh, I think you mentioned in the book, the individual's who find these uh, these objects then kind of maybe buy into the uh, supernatural ideas around them, uh, even as uh, as modern, um, you know, as residents of the modern world. Yeah, in in modern parlance, you, you could say that people kind of freak out a bit when they fi- when they find <laughs> these things in the, in their houses. Um, so, in in England, um, most of the houses where these uh, objects like this are found are usually very historic houses usually quite desirable, usually quite expensive houses. So so in modern times, usually the people that live in these houses are quite wealthy or professional, you know, and usually consider themselves to be quite serious professional individuals. So we've got kind of quite a lot of um, lawyers, you know, academicians, you know, people like that. And um, these are people who often don't even don't think they're superstitious or have any supernatural beliefs at all. And yet when they find these objects in their houses, they want to know what they are, first of all, and they'll contact someone like me and they start to learn more about it, not just from me, but from, you know, other literature online or from friends or whatever. And then they start to get really, 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 really worried that they have, that they're disturbing some form of protection and that whatever evil that these things were protecting against might come back into their houses. And they're often really frightened of, for example, a shoe being taken away from the house or a cat being moved or a bottle being broken or something like that. They feel that um, some dark energy that was being held at bay by this thing might suddenly reemerge. Now, obviously, when you when you look at the um, way people used to use these things, it was usually in a specific response to them feeling bewitched. So the chances of that same cause of the harmful energy, the same witch still being alive and transferring that harmful energy onto you is almost zero. But people, for some reason, feel that um, this is going to happen to them and they get incredibly worried. Um, I remember one one house where a witch bottle was found. We persuaded the guy to let us analyse the witch bottle. So we were going to take it to university, have it x-rayed and have all the contents analysed. And it took a lot of persuading to get him to do it. And this was for um, an English TV program on BBC Two called History Detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he'd reported the find because he found it really interesting. And as part of the research, you know, myself and my colleague, Dr. Alan Massey, we, we often would investigate um, bottles like this. And um, the production team and us, we had to work on him for ages to allow us to take it away. The whole time it was away, he was ringing every day. Is the bottle okay? When's it coming back? When's it coming back? I need it back in the house. Really, really felt desperately worried about it. And when it did come back to the house eventually after the analysis, um, he wanted it to be reinterred and he wanted me to do it because I was the first person he reported it to. And so I agreed. But when I got there, what I didn't know was that he and the production team had um, employed a group of nuns to pray (laughs) around me while I was lowering it into the hole. Um, So that was a... 
startling ends to that little bit of TV work. But um, but yeah, it just shows how strongly this guy felt about it. He really wanted um, the thing to go back where it had come from and he felt that it needed some kind of religious blessing in the process as well to make it safe. It's fascinating. It really makes me think about, uh, you know, in, in early on in the book, you also, you mentioned like the different sense world of being in a house uh, in uh, in historic times. You know, everything's quieter. And I guess maybe you've, you you hear all the, the sounds or potential sounds a bit more. But then also just thinking about our modern relationship with like the spaces between our walls or the spaces underneath the floor. It's there's there are things we know, like we, we tend to know or assume there are not spirits or demons under there, but we we don't know for sure that there's not uh, a mouse. Uh, we, we know there are wires and uh, and pipes uh, under and through our house. And we have at least some level of understanding of how those things work, but then also maybe some 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 empty spots in our understanding concerning, say, electrical wiring. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I would say that. Um that people in in the past often used to feel a bit like our our children do now, you know. So you know you've got a child going to sleep that that fears there's something under the bed or something, you know, hiding in behind a cupboard or something like that. You know, I think that it's not quite the same. I, I mean, I don't. I'm not saying that people had beliefs that were just like children, but if you imagine a more mature version of those beliefs, you know, that there there's, there still is a belief in magic. There still is a belief that there are some entities and some things around you that can harm you, but you can't see them. And you haven't got the power to do anything about them unless you learn some of these practices, you know. Only witches can maybe do something about these things, or white witches, you know, the village cunning person, for example, who's got control over some supernatural uh, powers could maybe manipulate some of these things, but but you can't, but all these things are around you. And so I think that some of those fears that we you might remember from being a child um, basically carry over into adulthood as um, uh, as a legitimate belief that everybody shared. You know, um, mm-hmm. I really do think that um, even as recently as the early twentieth century, in some rural areas, beliefs like this were absolutely normal, and um, and people had very sophisticated responses to them, including the practices I've mentioned plus others. Now, this is not uh, an example that I think has any supernatural aspects to it, but I was wondering, uh, I, I'm not sure if this is a feature of homes in the UK or not, or if this is just a thing in the States, or if this is uh, uh, found throughout the world, but uh, you look at older medicine cabinets sometimes, and there'll be a slot in the back to dispose razors down, like uh, shaving razors. Um, and uh, I, I couldn't help but think of that uh, now and again uh, whilst uh, whilst reading the book as being you know the, a place where we we put things that maybe have some sort of connection to our physical body, and they they also reminded me of the bent uh, nails a bit, the bent pins uh, as being these uh, you know these these bits of iron or, or or metal that are that are no longer useful. Yeah, I've seen um, I've seen some lots of examples of those. I can't remember the name of the Facebook group, but there's a, a group about oh, things found hidden in walls and everything. Oh yeah, and um, a lot of the examples from the states are where people have bought a really old house and there's been a, like a medicine cabinet and they found this great big mass of razor blades all behind the plasterboard. You know, mm-hmm. they've all been pushed through this slot and just been allowed to just sit there and rust away behind the behind the wall. And yeah, it's very similar, isn't it? You know, you can see why. Um, it's, it's, it's a similar idea, isn't it? You've got this, this thing, like you say, closely associated with the body. It's then been disposed of behind the wall. It's very sharp. You know, it's this sharp thing where supernatural, you know, is not going to lurk there anymore, is it? Because you've got all these dead, mm-hmm. sharp things. 
And it's very reminiscent of the belief in knife blades and um, things that used to be found underneath window sills and sometimes under door lintels. Where um, there's there's a you know we've talked a lot about this idea that things can be sort of killed in order to be activated on the supernatural plane, and that would the same would apply to all your kitchen utensils. You know, if you've got a broken knife, it now is activated, if you like, mm-hmm. and it is now a, a useful form of supernatural defence if you were to secrete it beneath a windowsill or pop it um, above a door lintel and so it's very similar there's kind of there's definitely a resonance there isn't that yeah finally as as both a witchcraft archaeologist and a musician is do you think there's a shortage of witch bottle mentions in songs about witchcraft and wizardry or are there are there some great examples out there that i just don't know about are you also a musician? Are you going to rectify this situation? Oh, no, I, <laughs> I, have, I have no ability to, to, to rectify it if, if there is a lacking. <laughs> I don't think, though, I don't, I don't know of any... Um, I'm sure that there are some little folk poems that reference the idea of uh, protecting against witchcraft, but I'm not aware of a good song, especially a rock song, which is my, my world, mm-hmm. about witch bottles. But... Um, but I do, th- I do know there is there is a metal band called Coast or Ghost, but with a K in the front instead of a G. And I know that they've started writing some crazy songs about um, counter witchcraft. So there may oh, be a witch bottle song coming from them soon. Excellent. Well, b- before we close out here, uh, I, I imagine that we have uh, perked a number of listeners' curiosities about this whole topic. Can you tell uh, our listeners how they can follow you, uh, the websites uh, or social media accounts they can go to uh, to to, uh, to learn more about this study? Sure. So um, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm there as Folk Magic Man, as one word. Um, but on Facebook and on my website it's a little bit more difficult to uh, convey without seeing it but uh, the the domain is apotropios which is you can probably share a link can't you in your podcast yes. but yeah mm-hmm. aperture that's probably the best way to do it but it's apotropios.co.uk or or dot com and um the same thing on facebook it would be forward slash apotropios um but yeah that's where it all is Excellent. Well, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with me here. This has been, I've I've enjoyed it tremendously, and I am sure that our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. I've enjoyed it very much too. Thanks again to Brian for coming on the show to chat. Again, the book is Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft, and it's available in physical and digital forms wherever you get your books. We only had time to discuss really a fraction of what is explored in the book, so if this topic fascinates you as it does me, pick it up. Thanks as always to Seth Nicholas Johnson for producing the show, and if you want to reach out, simply email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. 
No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.